Welcome to the Evolutionary Androgen Podcast. I'm Charlotte Alea, and I am on a quest for the stories that reveal to us our evolutionary potential. I search folklore throughout time and from around the globe that hold the keys to transform humanity's current crisis, from fractured and separated to whole and healed. As we unify feminine with masculine, a new version of us is emerging. We begin our quest today with a question. How do we create sacred space for our evolution? To answer that, let's acknowledge exactly where we are right now. Just about all of us are living a fractured version of who we really are. Patriarchal culture has taught us to cut ourselves into pieces and then to throw away those pieces that are not productive to upholding the culture. Most of those pieces that we have cut away and dismissed belong to our wildly feminine natures. Let's be honest. Where is the feminine within our culture? Where is she? From where I sit, she is a perfectly compassionate, overgiving, martyred mother. Or she is a too much overexpressed, over emotional whore. The former is delivered as a completely unrealistic expectation for any of us to live by and the latter as a bucket of shame and embarrassment. This is not the real feminine. Okay, perhaps the current situation is not quite as dire as this. I am being dramatic to make a point. Because in truth, despite many of our efforts to reclaim our feminine power, much of our true feminine nature has been outcast and violated. It's not like she's totally disappeared. We can never truly change our natures, but she has gone into hiding. And for some of us, she is buried deep, deep, deep below the surface of our consciousness. If you're a woman identifying person listening to this, you can probably relate. But I want to emphasize here that this is the case for all of us, no matter our gender identity. Yes, men too have lost their true feminine natures. So let's define the first step in our quest towards evolution, both personal and collective, as creating a sacred and safe space for the lost feminine parts of us to come back home. I call this the maroon ray of sacred space. Think of every step we take on our evolutionary quest as one ray of a rainbow. Today, we embrace the maroon ray and journey to invite the lost feminine back home. The story that will allow us to find the lost feminine is remarkably one of the oldest in recorded human history history, and yes, I emphasize that part of the word on purpose. This is the story called The Descent of Inanna. It is a myth from ancient Sumeria, which was a region that is now modern-day 
Iraq. The recording of the story dates back to around 2000 BCE, which is a bit over 4,000 years ago. But it is important to remember that before humans recorded their folklore, it was passed down word of mouth from generation to generation for sometimes thousands of years. So really, we have no idea how old this story is. I find it astonishing that one of the oldest stories we know about is also one of the most important for the healing of the feminine today. But you can be the judge of that. I sourced this story from the book Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth by Diane Wachstein and Samuel Noah Kramer, Harper and Rowe Publishers, though there are many translations and iterations of this myth available online and in print. The original is told in verse, and in respect for time, I am not going to recount it to you that way. You can consider this an abridged version. Let's begin. Inanna, the great goddess of heaven and earth, with temples in her name all over the land of Sumer, decides one day to abandon them all and journey to the underworld. The reason for her quest? Her sister, Ereshkigal, queen of the underworld, is aggrieved. Her husband, the bull of heaven, has died. Inanna is to fulfill her duty as both sister and queen of heaven and earth to witness the funeral rites. The great queen adorns herself sevenfold. She places the crown upon her head. She ties a necklace of lapid beads around her neck. She wraps a double string of lapis beads to drape low to her breasts. She wraps the royal robe around her body. She bounds the breastplate around her chest. She slips the golden ring around her finger. And she takes the lapis staff within her hands. She arranges her dark locks of hair just so across her forehead and daubs black ointment around her eyes. Then Inanna sets off for the underworld. Her faithful servant Ninshubur follows her. Inanna says to Ninshubur, If I do not return, set up a lament and circle the temples of the gods. Ask them for their help. Tell them not to let their holy priestess of heaven to be put to death in the underworld. Go now and remember these words. Inanna continues on her way alone. She makes her way to the outer gates of the underworld and cries out, Open the door, gatekeeper! Neti, the chief gatekeeper, asks who she is, at which Inanna proclaims herself. Neti responds, If you truly are Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, why has your heart led you upon this road of no return? Inanna explains her purpose. 
that she is to attend the funeral rites of her sister Areshkigal's late husband. Neti asks Inanna to wait as she goes to speak with Areshkigal, the queen. Neti explains to Areshkigal about her sister's appearance and about how Inanna has come wearing her seven sacred adornments. She describes them to Areshkigal piece by piece. The queen of the underworld is surprised. She did not expect her sister to appear in her domain. And so she thinks for a while and dwells with the matter within her heart. And then relays these instructions to Neti. Bolt the seven gates of the underworld and open them each one by one, only a crack for Inanna to enter. Only let her pass when you have removed one of her holy adornments, so that when she arrives to me, the Queen of Heaven is bowed low. Neti heeds these words and bolts the seven gates. She opens the outermost gate for Inanna and removes the crown upon her head. Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, is taken aback. What is this, she says. The ways of the underworld are perfect, Nettie says, and may not be questioned. And so Inanna allows it and proceeds to the second gate. As the second gate is opened a crack for her, the gatekeeper removes the lapis beads from her neck. And again, Inanna is dismayed. What is this? she says, and Neti repeats the words that the ways in the underworld may not be questioned. At the third gate, they remove Inanna's double strand of breast beads. At the fourth gate, her chest plate is removed. At the fifth gate, her gold ring is removed. At the sixth gate, they take her lapis staff. And at the seventh, they remove her royal robe from her body. She enters the throne room of her sister, Areshkigal, completely naked and bowed low. Areshkigal rises, and Anana starts towards her sister. But the judges of the underworld surround Inanna and do not let her proceed. They pass judgment upon her. Areshkigal, full of fury and grief, screams wrath upon her sister. She cries guilt upon her. She is so infuriated with Anana that she fastens the eye of death upon her and strikes her. Inanna is turned into a corpse and is hung as a piece of meat from a hook on the wall. This is where we shall pause our story and we will continue the second half in episode two. Because let's face it, there is already so much to unpack here. 
beginning with the contrast of Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, and Areshkigal, her sister, queen of the underworld. Here we have a beautiful representation of our dual nature, our light and our dark. The light aspects of us are the ones that we embrace within our waking consciousness and that are embraced by the world around us. This is represented by Inanna. As I shared before, the story of Inanna's descent is one of the oldest that humans have written record of, and it is one of few that carry a purely divine feminine message. This gives us a glimpse into what values humans may have operated from before the spread of patriarchy worldwide. Inanna was often depicted with her legs open, spread eagle, showing her good stuff. And patriarchal establishment, for this reason, likes to call her a quote-unquote fertility goddess which is missing the point, I think, and is seeing a fragment of the whole picture. The whole picture being that the feminine was worshipped. The earth herself was feminine and worshipped as a goddess. Inanna is the goddess of heaven and earth because heaven was not seen as separate from earth. She represents the gift of experiencing heaven while living on this planet. The gift of life that blooms and dies in endless cycles around us. So we begin in sacred space by worshiping our bodies as our divine feminine natures. Just as Inanna's body was worshipped, we worship our bodies as the marriage of heaven and earth in physical form, as the goddess. We acknowledge that the divine is present within us as an inherent aspect of our being. But Inanna, as we have been shown, is only half of the picture, right? To create sacred space, we must welcome in the parts of our feminine nature that we have rejected. Nowadays, this is most usually the parts of us that Through patriarchal indoctrination, women and men alike, we have deemed not okay. Ereshkigal in the story oversees the realm of our darkness, where the shadowy aspects of us that we reject go to live. Our shadows are what we have deemed unworthy, despicable, too much, too grotesque and awful, shameful. These parts of us, the outcasted feminine, are represented also by Ereshkigal herself. Let me be clear on the outset of this quest that when I refer to dark realms, darkness, etc., I am speaking with great reverence for this aspect of all of us. In no way do I believe that darkness equates to hell or evil or bad. In fact, the story of Inanna and Ereshkigal helps us to unravel and dispose of that kind of patriarchal splitting and conditioning. Just as Inanna sets out to do at the beginning of the story, 
we create sacred space for our evolution by purposely journeying to our darkness to retrieve our shadows. These grotesque underworld aspects of us that are actually the key to our growth and expansion. This brings us to the divine feminine archetype of the space holder. Creating sacred space means that we hold a container with boundaries that allows those shadow aspects of us to come in. In the story, we see this as represented by the realm of the underworld. It is out of the ordinary world, right? In mythos from all around the world, the underworld and the other world are often intermixed. And all are the realm of spirit and the unseen. The underworld is often seen as the place of the dead, the ancestors, as well as death and rebirth. It is the dark underbelly beneath our feet where matter is composted and returned to its original elemental form. It is the realm of all that remains in hiding, unilluminated by the light of our consciousness. In psychological language, the underworld is the realm of the unconscious. As we see in the story of Inanna's Descent, the underworld has its own laws, which are, as Nati says, perfect. It has boundaries, gateways, and guardians, all of which command respect. As we create our own sacred space for our healing evolution, we too need boundaries. And this brings us to the divine masculine archetype of the maroon ray, the guardian. We set boundaries in sacred space by centering and casting a circle, by calling in the directions. We set guidelines for those that enter so that it remains safe for all. Sacred space is a place without ego. And this leads me to those adornments of Anana, which are a huge focus in the first half of this story. Anana prepares for her journey by adorning herself for ceremony, by putting on her most treasured items, seven items to be exact. And yes, that number is quite significant. Many people have correlated those seven items and the seven thresholds of the underworld with the seven primary energy centers of the bodies. What a surprise it is for her to learn that she actually must surrender these seven adornments at seven thresholds in order to reach the inner sanctum of her sister's underworld queendom. We can relate this to our own journeys as an unmasking process, shedding layers of the ego and our identity that we have become quite attached to. Beginning a sacred healing quest requires that we first and foremost let go. To be willing to sacrifice what our ego believes is necessary, but what our soul knows is actually blocking us from living our truth. Oof, 
Yeah, this is not easy work. I can attest that I have been right there where Inanna stood at a gate of initiation saying, what is this? Or it was more like, are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) This summer, I went through an initiation like this in which my soul told me I needed to unpublish my book. The one that was a labor of love that I crowdfunded that was a culmination of my own personal healing. And yet, my soul knew that this book was now an unnecessary layer of my identity and that it was actually blocking me from the next stage of my evolution. What have you been asked to sacrifice for your soul's healing, growth, and evolution? A marriage or significant relationship? A secure, well-paying job? During moments of great evolution, Our souls ask us to sacrifice those aspects of our life that make us feel safe and secure, but that also bind us to an identity that constricts and limits us from the wholeness of who we really are. Another way to view Areshkigal is as the mother to our darkness. Like the dark goddess that lives deep within our unconscious and that has been guarding and keeping the shadow cut off parts of ourselves safe, tending to them as her own children. She isn't going to surrender these parts of us for nothing. She has a price. The price is our vulnerability and soul's truth. Because after all, We are the ones that rejected these aspects of ourselves in the first place. I'd like to bring in another myth from a different part of the world at this part of our discussion, one that helps to illuminate more about the lost feminine that Ereshkigal is keeping safe in the underworld. This is the story of the Well Maidens, and it comes from an obscure French poem called The Elucidation. It is by an unknown author from the 13th century and was written as a prequel to the Grail legends at that time. It is viewed by many to illuminate hidden aspects and origins of the search of the Holy Grail in Celtic mythos. Caitlin and John Matthews go into depth about this in their book, The Lost Book of the Grail, if you are curious to learn more. The story goes that all around the Celtic lands, there were sacred healing springs and wells that bubbled up at the top of fairy mounds, and they were stewarded and guarded by fairy women called well maidens. You can think of these fairy women as water sprites or even water elementals. They took on a humanoid form, but they were not human. They were a manifestation of a sacred feminine aspect of the natural world. When travelers would come to the wells for healing or nourishment, the well maidens would graciously and lovingly attend to them. They would offer their healing gifts. They would give them food and drink served out of golden cups, horns, and platters. They would sing and play enchanting songs for them. Whatever was requested was provided. And this continued for centuries, perhaps even millennia. 
It was a tradition throughout the land and was a way of maintaining harmony between fairy kind and humankind. Or you could even say humanity and nature. But then one day, a king, King Amangon to be exact, raped one of the well maidens and stole her golden cup and took her hostage. And then more kings followed this horrendous example and raped the well maidens and stole their precious golden cups and platters and horns. At that, all the well maidens at all the sacred healing springs and wells across the lands abandoned their outposts and went into hiding. And then it is said that the kingdoms went into ruin and the land became dead and desolate because the sacred accord between humankind and fairy kind, i.e. nature, had been violated and broken. The water element is typically associated with the feminine. Water is the element of our emotions, our intuition, our feeling body. So we can read this story as a revelation about the violation of the feminine natures of the earth herself, but also all of us. The quest for the Holy Grail that King Arthur and his knights undertook was originally a quest to find these well maidens and make what was wrong right. It was a quest to bring back the divine feminine by making the ancestors of King Amangon pay with their lives. <laughs> Until a pilgrim wandering in the forest informed Arthur and his knights that to kill the offspring of King Amangon was to kill the offspring of the well maidens themselves. The two lineages had now become one. Okay, wow. Do you see the truth and heaviness in that like I do? Victim and perpetrator under one body? Can you relate to that? The knights had no choice but to change their quest at this point and to find a different way of bringing the well maidens back. And there is so much more we could go into about this story and quite honestly, it deserves a whole episode of its own. So let me conclude by cutting to the chase. The knights never did succeed in their quest. Sure, they may have found the Fisher King, but the feminine nature within us all has remained in hiding ever since. Maybe they never succeeded because in truth, we don't need or want a chivalrous knight to save us. This is another antiquated idea perpetuated by the patriarchy. No, we need to save ourselves. We need to dig deep into our roots to a time when the divine feminine was worshipped across the land, the time of Inanna. We need the power of Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, now more than ever, to bring all of our feminine nature back home. We need to tap into the courage and vulnerability that she shows us in this story so that the traumatized aspects of us come out of hiding. Aresh Kagol, the guardian of our shadows, challenges us. She asks us, 
What are you willing to surrender for the sake of your own wholeness? What defenses are you willing to lay down in an act of radical self-compassion? Are you willing to surrender at all? At the end of this first part of the journey, Arashkako kills Anana and she dies. The story is sure to make that point abundantly clear when we see Inanna hanging from a meat hook. And this is a danger she certainly knew was possible at the outset of her journey and was willing to risk. This death represents for us the most difficult moments of our healing. When we face the trauma we have been hiding, when we face the despicable aspects of us, the wrath and rage that lives in us, and we believe it just might kill us. That's our fear talking anyway, because within this patriarchal cut-to-pieces culture, we have been taught that death is the end, and we have been taught that we are supposed to be fearless. Both of those are lies. We are only at the midway point of our story, facing our greatest fears and making the ultimate sacrifice is not the end of Anana, and it is not the end for us. One of the greatest gifts of our dark feminine nature is our ability to die. And I'm not primarily talking about physical death here. I'm talking about the gift we all have of going into the unseen realms, befriending our shadows, and releasing ourselves from bondage. The gift of surrendering all that is no longer needed to the dark underworld of the earth, where it is composted and transformed. The gift of letting ourselves be reborn anew. The gift of dying is the gift of rebirth. We never really die. We heal and we are transformed. I leave you today with a question to ponder. What aspect of you is willing to die in exchange for the return of your wild, dark, feminine nature? We will be back in the next episode with the second half of Inanna's story as we journey to the ruby ray of grace and discover the keys of feminine return. You have been listening to The Evolutionary Androgen, A Mythic Quest, with me, Charlotte Alea. If you liked this episode, we hope you'll consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for tuning in.